Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of 211's Baseball Talk. My name is Dylan Baker, and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by touted sports photographer Matt Hiscox, who will be joining us today throughout the episode. And here's what we've got on the menu for you. We will talk about the MLB's COVID return plan, life in sports photography, and we will wrap things up with another trade tree this week, the Blue Jays and Marlins blockbuster from December or November 2012. I can't quite remember. Matt, let's start with this. How are you today? Uh, I've been good today so far. The sun's been shining, so it's been a great day, and the weather's getting warmer, which hopefully it means we're going to see more things open up and maybe a little bit of baseball this summer. Yeah, for sure. You know what? The weather is really, really nice out there. It's been sunny all day, and that that's in London, Ontario, at least. Uh, it's been sunny all day. It's been warm, and it's only going to get better from here, we hope. So it's uh, it's been a beautiful day. Let's get right into the podcast as more and more details are emerging about the MLB's plan to return from the pandemic and their discussions with the Players Association. As we discussed last week with Noah Smith, they're talking about a shortened season, potentially a universal DH, and bans on sunflower seeds for uh, for one season only. They're also discussing having runners on base to start extra innings in order to speed up the process of finishing games. The owners were quite happy to approve the plan the MLB had proposed, but that was not the case with the players, and it still isn't. They were refusing to take a steeper pay cut, especially the 50-50 revenue idea, which they despise, and they want to have a full safety plan in front of them, and that I can't blame them on. The MLB did release their testing plan not long ago, uh, most likely in order to get the fan base to pressure the union a little bit with fans getting on players. First question for you, Matt. Do you think the players will be the reason this season gets delayed even further? I am 100% backing the owners on this one because a lot of the players that are complaining and saying, you know, we're not going to take a pay cut are the guys making the 30 million, the 40 million, the $15 million a year. And you have the guys that are making the lower amounts of money. Now this may be because they haven't gone public or anything like that, but they're not saying anything. They want to play baseball from what it seems. And I actually saw, uh, the day of this recording, Tom Gavlin says that he believes it's going to be on the players that there's not going to be a season this year as well because they're not going to want to take this 50-50 pay cut. And I think I agree. Like I said, I agree with the owners and these players that are making these multi-million dollars are, need to realize that every day there's no fans in the stadium. Yes, these multi-million dollar owners are losing money. And yes, they negotiated these deals. But no one saw this coming. No one saw that this was going to happen. No one knows what's going to happen down the road or when fans are going to be able to return. And they need to, you know, take a, take a step back here and realize that, okay, we've made our millions. Let's start taking back and just play the, the game for the enjoyment of fans so that we can actually have something to talk about other than the COVID-19. Exactly. I completely agree with you there. And you know what? I saw a video by Alex Rodriguez a couple of days ago on Twitter where he was kind of saying the same thing as Tom Glavin was, as you mentioned, that people people want to see games again and that players might be the reason that that doesn't happen because they are refusing to take a steeper pay cut, which is what they need to do in the midst of a pandemic. Like you mentioned, nobody, nobody, not a single person was able was was predicting that this would get as big as it did and stop the sports world last year. Right. So this was discovered in December. People have had to make changes on the fly. The players should be no exception to that. 
because they need to understand that they will have to split revenue 50-50. Maybe, maybe they can do something a little bit better where more goes to the players, but they're going to have to take a steep pay cut in order for this season to happen. Fans want to see baseball be played. And you can make the excuse that Alex Rodriguez and Tom Glavin have already made their millions of dollars and they shouldn't be talking in this scenario. I can understand that. But at the same time, you know, these teams need to be able to survive. The Kansas City Royals are already struggling. They were bought for a billion dollars, I believe, a couple of years ago. Their attendance numbers are as far down as they were back in, like, their last rebuild, which I wasn't even alive for. And they are struggling. They will struggle to survive. Their predicted their projected loss, I believe I read, was 400-something million dollars. So these players need to understand that they need to take a pay cut, whether that's 50-50 revenue splitting, whatever it may be. Players need to buckle down, say, okay, I've got millions of dollars. The, the players who are making less, like you mentioned, I haven't heard very many of them complain, and it could be because they haven't come forward yet, but they need to understand that their, their money will be chopped because of the fact that there is a pandemic and like you mentioned you you hit the you hit the nail right on the head when you said that every day that there are no fans in attendance at baseball games the owners are losing money so they need to be able to make a profit so the team can survive and stay afloat while also paying players and players need to understand that and be prepared to take a steeper pay cut moving on the nhl sorry go ahead matt and it's not just the players you look at Everybody that has to run the the stadium, the grounds crews, the writers, the photographers, the broadcasters, they also need to get paid here. So it's not just the players that are losing out on money right now with this season not happening. Everybody is. Everybody involved in the lines of sorts. You've seen it yourself. We had we were supposed to be eight games into the season by now when the uh, w- with the IBL and the London Majors, and we haven't been able to play a game yet. We haven't even been able to see the field yet. Everybody is losing money every day that this doesn't happen. So the players need to realize that that this is not just them. It's the world that needs to step up and they need to start by stepping up and taking these pay cuts. Exactly. Completely agree with you there. We're going to move on now to uh, something that has been discussed by the NHL and the NBA. When they return, they would, they will potentially play in hub cities in order to limit travel. Now, the NBA today, details emerge that they're uh, looking at Disney World as a potential place for the players to play. Uh, Vegas has come out and uh, been one of the better options for sports leagues to play, where you can have an entire hotel that can be reserved for the NHL or the NBA, whatever it may be. Is this an idea that you can see the MLB exploring as well? I see this is something that I think they have to do for the limitations of travel and everyone's safety. And just overall, it just makes the most sense. Yes, it's going to put a lot on grounds crews, ice rinks. It's going to put a lot on the people that run those. But it's safer. Everybody, you don't have to worry about tests being from different places and getting lost. All the tests are in the same spot. All Everybody's there and... If one team gets a positive testing, okay, well, that team is shut down and anybody in that hotel is shut down. That mean, that mean maybe a game is canceled, or two games are canceled, whatever has to happen. It's a lot easier, a lot safer for these hub cities than it is to go around 
everywhere because now, yes, you're going to lose jobs in Toronto and other places like that, but you're still going to have people making money and you're still going to have everybody playing the game and everybody's going to be a lot more confined and easier quarantined when it comes to playing the game. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? It's it's a safer option to do hub cities. And the NHL was talking about a 2014 playoff format, 12 teams in one city, 12 teams in another. And I think that's a genius idea. I don't believe that hub cities are in the proposed plan that the MLB gave to the MLBPA. Uh, but we'll we'll have to see there. I think it, would, it wouldn't be a bad idea at all to do hub cities. Uh, another question on the subject of travel. With the Canadian and American border being closed and Prime Minister of Canada Justin Trudeau very much upholding the 14-day quarantine period for anyone coming into the country, how likely is it the Blue Jays will need to play all of their games in Dunedin if they don't do the hub city idea? I think that it's going to be almost a 90% that they are playing in Dunedin. I think that 10% maybe for later on, late August, September games, you might see Toronto come back to their home stadium at the Rogers Centre. But I think 90, 90% that they're going to start the season, if not play the whole season, in Dunedin this year because of the 14 days. And it's it's just safety. You can't be risking people coming into in and out of airports as much as it is. And when you look at the numbers compared from Canada to the U.S., it's just not smart to have that many potential cases coming into Canada without some type of barrier. Yeah, for sure. And you know what I think? It's, it's inevitable pretty much right now because the, the border's closed, and rightfully so. The Prime Minister of Canada is saying that the 14-day quarantine period still needs to happen, which I definitely agree with because the safety of, of both the population of both countries and the players – uh, it's 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 the it's the top priority right now. So I agree with the 14-day quarantine. I agree with the border being shut down. I think you are right in the sense that we might see some Blue Jays games get played in Toronto in late August and September if things start to clear up a little bit. We'll see how it goes in the U.S. We'll see how it goes in Canada for that to happen. I'm not even sure that a lot of NHL teams are going to be able to play in uh, in Canada if Edmonton and Vancouver and Toronto, three of the potential hub cities, uh, don't get accepted. I don't think we'll see any or very many professional sports games in Canada this year. Mm-hmm. Moving on. Today we are lucky enough to be joined by a very talented sports photographer as Matt Hiscox is the official photographer for the London Majors of the Intercounty Baseball League as well as one of the photographers for the London Knights of the Ontario Hockey League. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure so far and it looks to be even more fun going through. So Matt, with many roles around the sports world, there's one defining moment where somebody usually knows that that's what they want to do. When did photography become your dream profession? Basically, as soon as I was done taking or playing hockey when I was about 18 years old, I knew that, you know, I wanted to coach, but to coach any level of pro and semi-pro hockey, you had to get all the certificates and everything like that. And it just wasn't something I didn't want to have to sit in a classroom and learn how to coach. Coaching for me has always been something you learn in the game and learning while doing. And photography is something that I've been able to do and learn while doing. And for me, when I was able to get in with Western and play, do some of their games, I was doing hockey, football. 
Uh, I even did some soccer then before I got into the Knights and the majors. That was, you know, it was a time that I was enjoying. And it's like, okay, this seems like it could be a lot of fun to still be involved in sports. And even the friendships that I, I make in sports now. I know guys that I've talked to in the OHL with the Knights that I could call up today and say, hey, how is it going? That played three or four years ago. So it's it's a lot of fun for me now even more than what it was when I was playing. That's awesome because you can make so many great connections around the sports world. And uh, you've been fortunate enough to make quite a few good ones in, uh, in the Ontario Hockey League and in the IBL. So, Matt, what was your first real photography job? And I say real because – for many, photography is just a just a hobby. But for for others, uh, they they actually want to do something with it, and that you are one of those people. So, what was your first big job where you were starting to see a return for your effort? Actually, it wasn't until I joined the majors team because I was doing a lot of freelancing and doing the nights here and there, or doing western here and there. So I wasn't doing a lot of steady work and the year before I joined the majors actually one of my idols Wayne Brown had just kind of call it quits to do his photography for the majors so it kind of opened a, a door for me and lucky for me I actually ran into Scott Dart at Shrock Arena and I kind of I said hey I'm a photographer I'd love the chance to do some photos for you and he says well we have an opening come down and, and shoot with me and We'll see what you can do. And from there, it's just been history. And I've been doing it now four or five years. And each year, the role increases from more than just photography. That's, that's, that's really cool because there are obviously so many interesting stories for people that, that want to get into the get into the sports space. And the fact that you saw the owner of an IBL team, their co-owner of an IBL team at, a, at an arena, and you asked for a – for a job pretty much and he he accepted you and that's how you got in and now you play such a such an important role in the majors organization that's that's a great great little uh, story there that i'm sure you'll you'll be happy to share down the road uh with whoever may be wondering how to get into photography so you shoot both hockey and baseball on a consistent basis how does your approach change from sport to sport in order to still capture the emotion of photography the biggest thing that I can say on that is I learned the game. When I first started out, all I had the joys of shooting was football because I was at Clark Road Secondary School and I picked up a camera and went out and I didn't want to shoot architecture. I didn't want to shoot, you know, a bottle sitting there. That wasn't enjoying for me. So I went out and shot football, but I didn't just go out and shoot. I sat and watched YouTube videos. I shot uh, little, like, younger kids, and I just learned the game. Yes, can, can I go out and coach the game? No, I can't. But I know what a run should look like and where it should go and everything like that. For me, it's learning the game and understanding that you have to learn before you shoot what you're doing. So – for me, hockey was always the easiest one because I played that since I was three years old. But when you look at football and and baseball, I didn't learn those until I was in high school. So I sat and watched YouTube videos, and I was lucky enough to play baseball for two years in high school. So I was able to enjoy and learn more about the game 
and sit and watch. We're so lucky we can watch the Blue Jays here in Canada, you know, not have to worry about watching the States. We got, we have guys that are two hours away from us and just learning everything like that and where the emotion comes from in each shot and learning from people that are around the game more than myself and other photographers. I have so many photographers that I talk to through social media now that aren't even in Canada. I have photographers down in Minnesota, the uh, Brian Rempel. He's an amazing photographer and just learning, not even talking to him about what he shoots and his settings and everything, but what he does to get the shot. And sometimes you have to push your way into a shot, but sometimes you just have to step back and see the shot. And learning the game really helps you understand that. That's a really good point to raise because for a lot of people that want to make or want to take these great shots, they need to know the sport. They need to know where to be and people can say right place right time all they want if you don't know the the spot where most of the action happens then you're going to struggle to take great pictures that's just my personal opinion what do i know on photography very little but you know it's the same thing with with so many different things that you could do around the sports world if you don't know the sport that you're that you're shooting or that you're calling whatever you're doing then you're not going to do a good job so how important is knowing the sport that you're shooting in order to take a great picture. Uh, you can't you can't shoot a sport without knowing somewhat of 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 the sport. You know, you can shoot as much as you want and yes, you're going to get lucky. You might get a little you might get one out of 10 shots, but if you know the sport or you know the style of play, like for me shooting the Knights, I've been lucky. I've been around them since 2012. So I've learned the Dale Hunter style of play. And I've been able to see what they like to do when they set up on a power play or on the defensive end. I've learned that kind of style. And for me, it's like I said, you have to know the sport if you want to have a good selection of photos. Like I said, you're going to get lucky one or two times, but you're not going to get lucky or you're going to get less like lucky if you don't know the sport. If you know the sport, you're – opportunity and your volume of photos is going to be higher than if you don't know the sport. That's fascinating. And I, uh, I completely understand what you're, what you're saying because you need to know what you're talking about in order to properly take pictures of, uh, of what you're shooting. Now you take pictures for sports, but also you shoot live events and family photos. Do you prefer shooting sports or concerts and, uh, and other things? Personally, I haven't been lucky enough to shoot a lot of concerts, but concerts are a whole different ballpark. You know, it's, I shouldn't say it's a whole different ballpark. It's like sports because you're only going to get that one chance to get that one photo family photos. I can set up a family in a studio and shoot that photo five times, but in a sporting event or a concert, you only got one chance and one chance only to get that one shot that you need. And it might be a fan interaction with a, with at a concert, or it might be a game-winning run uh, in a baseball game or a game-winning goal for a hockey game. So for me, it's sports, then concerts, then studio work, I should call it, because there's it's not more than just family photos. It's all different types of photos, but sports and concerts, it's, it's a whole different animal for myself and 
probably a lot of different photographers to, and some don't like to venture into different. They always say, Oh, stick to your passion, stick to what you know. But if you don't grow, you don't get the opportunity to, to do more things. Like if I didn't learn baseball or have the chance to shoot baseball, I wouldn't be where I was. And who knows what the major social platform could look like. Yeah. And you know what? First of all, I'd like to say, I thought I was listening to an Eminem song when you were talking about one shot, one opportunity. Uh, I thought you were reading out the lyrics to lose yourself, but you bring up a good point in the sense that, you know, you concerts are like sports in that sense where you need to focus to try and get that one great picture that's going to live on forever. And you see all these great photos and it just, it's just, you know, the, the, the lucky picture, like you said, that, you know, lasts a lifetime. And uh, so you, got, you really got to be tuned in in order to, to get that shot. Moving on to a different side of your, your many, many jobs, you are also a media relations guy doing social media and stuff like that. Having worked for a few teams in your past on the social media side of things, what do you think it takes to manage social media? You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's just running social media. How hard can that be? And it's just like when someone says, oh, your camera takes great photos. It's a slap in the face for a lot of people. And it takes a whole team to run it. I'm probably the luckiest person in the IBL to have you and Noah on my team running the social media with me. Because, yes, I have many ideas, but I can't put them together without a team behind me. And... That's what a lot of people don't realize that, you know, it might just be social media. It might just be Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But when you see the positive comments, there's negative comments that you have to deal with as well. And I, and you know, I've dealt with many of those or, and scheduling scheduling is the biggest thing as well with the majors. You try and set a schedule so that the fans see, okay, tonight is the game and this is who we're playing and this is what happens. But you know as well as I do, we've gotten to the ballpark and 10 minutes before first pitch, we've had to cancel the game or the rain, The game's going into a rain delay. And you have to get that out there on all social media platforms so that everybody who's on their way to the game or is tuned into their phone before the game watching in the stands knows what's going on. And it's it's totally different nowadays from – even a year ago, you look at there's so much more growing. Like for the majors, we have not only do we have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we have YouTube as well for all our videos. So we have to make sure that's run properly. And as I, I've talked to Scott about this many side times and times and times, is the negative comments always come. And, you know, I always feel like they're attacking me. And that's one thing that me as a person, I am very dedicated to a team. So when I see negative comments, it's like, you know, why, why are you making that negative comment? Why, why are you attacking something? Give me the story and let me try and fix it. Or, you know, why are you doing that? Because if there's a reason, we got to fix that. you got to grow as a team. And like I said, it's always good to have, like I said, I've got you and I've got Noah, but I know I also have ownerships backing as well with Scott and Roop. They always are there if something goes wrong or something's negative. They're there to back me up on how I approach it and also how I try and level the situation. 
Yeah, and you know what? You bring up a great point when you say that it's the social media managing is so much more than just posting a picture. You've got to get a message across, and you've got to try and do it in an in an, in an engaging way for a lot of people. Because especially with the London majors, who are London's only uh, senior, I guess, IBL team or baseball team, I should say, in the IBL, you know, a lot of people are are looking at what you're posting, and a lot of people. Are, are tuned in to the majors. So you've got to satisfy their demands. You've got to satisfy ownership's demands and you've got to try and engage them and, and grow, grow the fan base. And that leads me into my final question for you. How do you look to grow a fan base? The best way that I have found to grow a fan base is find somebody that the fan base doesn't know. And, you know, you look at the London majors, Everybody knows Cleveland Brownlee. You say London Majors. We did this probably, I believe it was like two weeks ago, where you put out that logo and who do you, who's the first player that comes to your mind? Well, I think 98% of them were Cleveland Brownlee. Well, my goal now is not to avoid Cleveland Brownlee, but find players that they don't know. We're lucky. I'm lucky myself that I have a good relationship with a lot of the players and – I can go to them and say, hey, we got, we want to do this. Are you on board to help out? And they'll be the first one to help out and get their name and put a face to themselves when they're on the game. Like, we're so lucky in baseball that 99% of the players you see aren't wearing a face shield. So it's easier to put a face to a name in baseball. But in hockey, it's a little harder because you now have to make sure that players – are seen with and without their visors or their cages. And the other thing is, too, is who do the fans want to see? Who's a big person involved in in the team that might not be the Cleveland Brownlee or, in the Knights' case, the Connor McMichael? Who else is out there? Who else do the fans want to know about or should know about? Who should they also be cheering on? So it's really hard to grow, especially right now with the COVID-19 you know, and us not having a full roster because we were shut down just before the season and we had a full roster. It's now taking the guys that we have on the roster and growing them and putting them out there more for the fans to know and for the fans to learn about so that when we do come back, they have more than just Cleveland Brownlee and the London majors to cheer on. We have Cleveland Brownlee, Mike Ambrose, Owen Boone, you know, uh, Carlos, when he was here, growing the whole team, not just one person and the team. It's the whole team. Okay, that's a really, really good point. You know what? It's something that, that kind of gets overlooked because people tend to post the stars, but you do have to grow the whole team, as you mentioned, not just one person. Matt, thank you so much for talking to us about uh, social media and photography. I know we're not done the episode, but I just wanted to say thank, thank you. you. That was a great conversation. So as we mentioned last week, we'll be highlighting trades uh, almost every week, big blockbusters. If you've got a trade uh, request that you would like us to cover, please let us know uh, through our social media. This week, Matt and I will discuss the Blue Jays and Marlins trade in 2012. And because this trade is so large, instead of asking Matt his opinions on moves, we will also, he will also, pardon me, be walking you through this deal. So let's start with the Blue Jays side of things. Matt. Uh, where, well, where do we begin? Everybody was traded in this deal. It felt like a whole new roster for the Jays on this one. Um, but one of the first members that came over 
to the Jays was Emilio Bonifacio, who wasn't around for too long. Uh, but after he was with the Jays for a little while, he was moved to Kansas City, where he did have a good year the next year. Uh, but then he was basically he was traded to the Kansas City for cash. So it wasn't a big deal, but it, it gave the Jays a player to have in the deal. And, you know, he was traded for cash, which everybody needs cash nowadays. Yeah, and so Emilio Bonifacio, first part of that deal, I was not a big Bonifacio fan. In fact, we had a special little nickname for him, but I will not mention it on the air. Matt, I'll tell you that one after. Uh, Next up, we had John Buck. He was acquired and didn't play a single game as a Blue Jay. He was traded alongside Travis Darnold and Noah Syndergaard to the New York Mets in that famous R.A. Dickey deal. Uh, Dickey was then uh, let go in 2016. He posted a 7.1 war, though, as a Blue Jay. So definitely a very successful pitcher, reached 200 innings multiple times, could always give you a ton of starts. He left as a free agent in 2016 to the Atlanta Braves, and Josh Toley was also acquired by the Blue Jays. He did not have as successful of a tenure uh, in a Blue Jays uniform with a minus 2.2 wins above replacement. He was sent to Arizona, or sorry, he left for Arizona as a free agent in 2016. Uh, One of my favorite pitchers to play for the Blue Jays. I think if you were to nickname this guy, it'd be old reliable because it was Mark Burley. And when you look at Burley, he's always out there and he gave you everything he could. And he retired in 2015, which didn't surprise me because he was getting up there in age. But when he was trade or when he was, did come over, he became a key piece of the rotation. And it was probably one of the best moves that management had made at that time to bring in Mark Burley for a young, a young rotation that needed that veteran in the keys. Yeah, for sure. No, Marcus Stroman came up not long after that. Aaron Sanchez was soon after. And you know what? Burley and uh, even R.A. Dickey mentored them quite well. Burley had a 6.9 war as a Blue Jay. Next up, we have Josh Johnson. Josh Johnson was an interesting piece of that deal. It has since been revealed that he was actually hurt. And that's why there was a delay in the NLB approving the trade uh, of Josh Johnson to the Blue Jays. He had a minus 1.5 war. And keep in mind, he was released that season. So he didn't even play a full year with the team and still had a minus 1.5 war. And now the big piece for the Blue Jays. Yeah, this one, it led to a lot of good things and it led to the 2015 playoffs as well. Uh, It was Jose Reyes who came over in the deal. He had a 6.5 war for the season, uh, but didn't last too long. But he did play three years with the Jays before being traded to Colorado with Jeff Hoffman, Miguel Castro, and Jesus Tinkar for two of the best players to play in that season. I think uh, Latroy Hawkins was a absolute beast in the bullpen for the Jays and Troy Tulowitzki as well, who was then released uh, and played for the Yankees for a little bit there before retiring himself. Yeah, so it was, it was a huge deal. Oh, the Reyes deal to Colorado with Jeff Hoffman, Miguel Castro, Jesus Tinoco in order to get Troy Hawkins, Troy Lewitsky, two huge pieces down the stretch. So Reyes had a 6.5 war over his three years. Tulowitzki had a 4.9 war over his two, three years, I believe, as well. Didn't play in 2018, so I wasn't too sure what to go with there. Now, 
this is where things get exciting. The Miami Marlins have had uh, some horrendous moves in their past, and uh, this trade was no exception. We move over to the Marlins side of things. The Blue Jays sent shortstop Yunel Escobar to Miami as a part of this deal. And Escobar, you know, he was a decent player for the Blue Jays. He was surrounded in a lot of controversy. I believe he put some not-so-nice things on his eye black uh, in Spanish uh, during a few games as a Blue Jay. And uh, he was traded to the Marlins in this deal, like John Buck on the Blue Jay side. By the way, John Buck was an all-star as a Blue Jay in 2010. Uh, just a fun fact that I discovered in doing this research. I knew he played for the Jays prior to this, but I didn't realize he was an all-star. Anyway, you know, Escobar, like John Buck, did not play a game in a Marlins uniform and was traded to the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for Derek Dietrich. Now, Dietrich, as a Marlin, had a 4.2 war over his time in Miami, and that's not terrible. You know, Dietrich was a good player. So this is one of the better moves that came out of this deal for the Marlins. He was DFA'd, though, in November of 2019 after some offensive struggles in, 20, in that season. And I uh, went to the Cincinnati Reds. He had a buck 93, I believe, with the Reds in 20... Uh, sorry, DFA November 2018. And he hit about a buck 93 in Cincinnati in 2019. Well, Next we got to remember Derek Dietrich there? also had the most recent release with Trevor Bauer on their live at-bats. And if you haven't watched that, Make sure you go watch that because there is a little uh, controversy with Mr. Trevor Bauer in that one as well. Uh, but next up was Angel Hecheverria. And I will always butcher that name just because I do not speak Spanish. Uh, but he was traded after the Marlins deals at Tampa Bay for uh, Braxton Lee and Ethan Clark, who then was dealt to the Angels in 2019 as well. So they did make him there for a while, and he was a good shortstop for them, but he didn't last as long there as well before being sent over to Tampa Bay. Yeah, so Echeverria, Echeverria, by the way, sorry. Matt, don't mean to correct you there, but uh, he was sent to the Tampa Bay Rays uh, for Braxton Lee. Braxton Lee is actually still in the Marlins organization, one of the few pieces in this deal that are. Uh, he's in AAA right now, and as you mentioned, Ethan Clark was sent to the Angels in 2019. Echeverria had a 3.6 war of his time in Miami. Next up, Henderson Alvarez. Now, there was some controversy in sending Alvarez to the Marlins. He didn't have great success at the big league level, but was one of the Jays' better pitching prospects. And Alvarez showed the Marlins why he was atop the pitching chain in the, uh, in the Blue Jays' system, because he threw a no-hitter as a member of the Miami Marlins. He had a 5.9 war uh, with them, but had a terrible 2015 season. Um, and, you know, he was injured for most of it as well. So he left in free agency to the Oakland A's. Uh, played a little bit there and has since not been heard from. Yeah, this, this one was a, bigger, was a bigger one with the Jays and the Marlins. It was a deal that just keeps on going, really, was Anthony De La Fanchi. And I'm going to, and we all know, and we, I know I'll hear about this later that I always butcher names. So I apologize for everyone listening. Uh, but he was dealt to Miami and then was traded for Matt Latos from Cincinnati, or, uh, yeah, with, to the Cincinnati with Matt Latos. And Latos, I'm not sure if he's still around, but there was moves after that as well as he was then traded to the Dodgers for, or with Michael Morsey for Victor Alvarez and Jake Brigham as well, as well Kevin Gosman. 
Yeah, so Anthony DiStefani was sent to the uh, Marlins as part of that deal, had a minus 0.4 war. He was traded to the Reds with Chad Wallach, as you mentioned, for Matt Latos, and uh, the rest is a history. And, and, you know, the Marlins don't have any of those guys that they got from that uh, Matt Latos deal in their system still, which tells you how, uh, how you know, I'm not going not to sugarcoat anything, how terrible their, their moves were. Uh, three more players to discuss as a part of this deal. The next two are going to be pretty simple, and then there's one big one. Uh, Jeff Mathis went to the Marlins. He is still around one of the best defensive catchers in the game, one of the worst offensive catchers in the game as well. He had a minus 0.4 war in his time in Miami, left to Arizona in free agency, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Justin Ranger. Nichols, Who's up he was a – or Nicolino, sorry. He was acquired in the deal and then was placed on waivers in 2018 – to a team that seems to be very familiar with the Miami Marlins as he went to Cincinnati. So if I'm not mistaken, that's three moves out of this one move that have been involved with Cincinnati. So a lot of movement with them for the Miami Marlins. Yeah, so Justin Nicolino uh, went to Cincinnati through waivers. And like you mentioned, that's three players that have gone to the Cincinnati Reds out of this deal. Uh, one of which was not a part of the Blue Jays system, but still going from the Marlins to the Reds. Now, finally, Jake Marisnik, in his time with the Marlins, only played about half a season, had a zero war, and he was traded to the Houston Astros. Now, the Miami Marlins-Toronto Blue Jays deal actually helped set up the 2017 World Series, that along with the center field camera and a trash can, but that's not the important part right now. Jake Marisnik was traded to Houston, with Colin Moran, Francis Martez, and a competitive balance pick, who turned out to be Daz Cameron, who is, I believe, still in the minor leagues, in exchange for Jared Cozart and Austin Waits, as well as Kike Hernandez. Now, you have heard that name before, and we will get there in a little bit. Jared Cozart was traded to San Diego with Josh Naylor, good Canadian boy, uh, who is from, I believe, Mississauga, and my colleague and your colleague, Noah Smith, is very proud of the fact that he got Josh Naylor to pop up when they were playing in uh, 18U baseball. He was a member of those, a member of the London Badgers, Josh Naylor for the Ontario Blue Jays. Uh, so Naylor went to San Diego with Carter Caps and Luis Castillo, who was flipped to guess who, Matt? The Cincinnati Reds and is a huge part of their team now. For Colin Rea, who had a 0.2 war in his time in Miami, who was DFA'd in 2016, and Tehran Guerrero, who was DFA'd in 2019, uh, went to the Chicago White Sox. Andrew Kashner was also headed to Miami as a part of that deal, and he had a minus 0.5 war as a member of the Marlins, really struggled, went to Texas, and sort of turned things around there. Now, Kike Hernandez, Matt, I will let you get, give us the last two moves in this deal after this one. Kike Hernandez was traded to the Dodgers with Chris Hatcher, Austin Barnes, and Andrew Heaney for Dan Heron, D. Gordon, and Miguel Rojas. Hernandez barely played with the Marlins, only posting a 0.5 war. Heron uh, had a 2.0 war, but wanted out of Miami. D. Gordon was one of the Marlins' best players, had an 8.2 war as a member of the team. And Miguel Rojas, still a Marlin today with a 5.9 war. Two moves came out of that deal with the Dodgers, of course. The World uh, Series you know, well. Darren Han Matt, or Dan, Dan Heron, who was traded to the Chicago Cubs for Kilio Soto, who was then DFA'd in 2016, and Ivan... Uh, I believe it's Perennial, who was then DFA'd and sent to Arizona in 2016. So a lot of moves just in that one. Uh, and then we see a familiar face, D. Gordon, was then sent from 
the uh, Miami Marlins to Seattle for another three players. So we see two players get moved from one for two and one for three. And that was a big deal with uh, Robert Duger, Chris Torres, and Nick Nadelt uh, all dealt for D. Gordon in that move. Yeah, so D. Gordon went to the Seattle Mariners. For those three players, only Robert Duggar uh, has played in the MLB coming out of that deal with a 0.7, minus 0.7 war. Now, total wins above replacement. This really measures the value of players to their team. Uh, so the Miami Marlins, I'm not going to count how many players they had play for them as a part of this deal. I will say it's probably upwards of 20. They had a combined 29.9 wins above replacement with the Marlins alone. The Blue Jays had far fewer players. In fact, if I were to count quickly, it's nine players. Nine players compared to 20-plus the Marlins, and they posted nearly the same wins above replacement at 21.1 wins above replacement as members of the Blue Jays. Uh, It looks like, I believe, yes, that Blue Jays side of the deal has completely faded away. The Marlins still with pieces from that deal and from the moves after it. Matt, if you had to declare a winner from this Well, when you look at it, nine players... Dealt for, and you're going to be blown away with this, 28 players in general. When you look at the trade and the trade bracket and everything, nine players for 28 players. For me, it was a throw it in here and try and get started. And for me, this deal basically set up the 2015 playoffs for the Jays. So, And we all know what Miami's done since 2012, and we won't mention it. it kind of sounds like what Houston was using for their uh, World Series championship out in the in the dugout there. Uh, but for me, it's it's the Jays won this trade by far. When you can acquire a player like Mark Burley, Jose Reyes at the time, Emilio Bonifacio, he was a good player a little while, um, and Ari Dickey coming out of that deal as well. For me, it's a no-brainer. It's the, it's the Jays on this one. Yeah, for sure. I'm completely enthused. Yeah, the Toronto Blue Jays were the winners of this deal. And you, the listeners, were the winners of this podcast because it was a great episode. And we're very thankful to have Matt Hiscox on the show. It Matt, really was. So and and I always love talking episode. about my passion uh, of sports photography. And I'll always say this. Anybody that wants to talk and sit down and talk about photography, I'm more than happy to sit down, teach, listen, learn, everything like that. You can find Matt at Matt Hiscox Photography or just Hiscox Photography on uh, certain uh, social, on all social media platforms, I should say. Matt is a great guy to talk to. Whether you want to talk baseball, hockey, or photography, he is your guy. Thank you all very much for listening to episode 55, Life as a Sports Photographer of 211's Baseball Talk. We will talk to you all next Thursday when we have another great episode.